Mary's love of Jesus was extraordinary. And Mary's love, Mary was an ordinary woman with extraordinary love. She was still hopelessly devoted to Jesus, even though she thought he was dead. She simply thought somebody stole Jesus' body at worst or moved it at best. Either way, she thought Jesus was dead, but she was still devoted to him. Look again at what she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. I will get him. Now that is what I would call furious love. The furious love of Mary Magdalene. They've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And then she has an encounter with someone and she says, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is and I will go get him. I will go after him. I will do whatever it takes. She had no clue where he could have been. Didn't know what she was gonna have to go through to get him. She just says, wherever he's at, that's where I'm going and I'm gonna go get him. And I wonder, do we have the same attitude? When we encounter frustration, when we encounter pseudo Jesuses or things that we understand are, are not real, not pure, that we have confusion, do we say to God, like we talked about in this first sermon of this entire series, do we have a divine discontentment? Where we say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. I will find him, I will do whatever it takes. Welcome to those of you here. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online, either via YouTube or Facebook. Uh, as Pastor Jordan mentioned, uh, today is Palm Sunday. And we are very excited for today, obviously, but also for this upcoming Holy Week, the opportunity to uh, gather together for our first ever Good Friday service, something that we plan on being an annual thing going forward. And also, of course, then uh, next Sunday morning uh, for Easter. So... Um, when I became a Christian and I decided to follow Jesus, which will be 25 years ago this fall, uh, I was all alone uh, in, in my college dorm room. And I had uh, what would be considered uh, by some to be a fairly radical conversion experience. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that today, but shortly after I decided uh, to follow Jesus, I received from, uh, from God uh, what I've recognized now, 25 years later, to be both an incredible gift and also at times a burden. And what this was is when I became a Christian, not long after, I instantly had uh, just an insatiable hunger for uh, the Word of God. Specifically for me at that time, it was the New Testament. And even more specifically, more specifically than that, it was the Gospels and Acts. And so I would pour over the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then I would also read Acts, and I would pour over those time and time again. There, there were very few days that went by, I don't think maybe any for a long stretch, where I didn't read at least one Gospel beginning to end. I was just taking it all in, and I was just blown away and impacted and just, it was an amazing time in my life, a time that I, that I cherish uh, very deeply. And at that time in my life, I only had one friend who was a Christian. And I didn't really have any other sort of support system. And I didn't have really any uh, familiarity at that time uh, with Christian culture. And I certainly didn't understand uh, Christian culture, not that I do now. But 
I, I didn't certainly back then. And so at 18, being very uh, innocent, I believe, and honestly quite naive, and then obviously being an 18-year-old, uh, having some immaturity and some baggage and, and things like that that I brought into it, um, I, I, just, I, I just had this sort of like naivete again where I read the Gospels and I read Acts specifically and, of course, the epistles and, and all the other New Testament books and stuff too. And I was operating under this assumption that like this is how Christianity would look. Uh, that like when I started and I started going to church and I started going to a, a Thursday night college age Bible study and I just had this assumption operating under this idea that like here's what I'm reading, how Jesus, what Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, how he talks about how we should live. Here's what kind of happened after Jesus was resurrected and in the early church and I just thought well that's okay that's what we do right like we go out and we do that stuff and that's how it is. Um, and I learned quickly, uh, and that wasn't it. And, and this brought about, I said this was a burden, because this brought about, again, with my immaturity, some frustration, some that was probably very justified, some that wasn't, brought about a bit of disillusionment. Uh, on my part, it became very difficult for me to just, I didn't have the support system, I didn't have to understand what was going on, and really the gap that I was seeing between the Gospels and Acts and then what I, what I was, and I'm not trying to, to bash anything, but just what I was seeing uh, preached and taught and lived out. And I'm trying to reconcile this in my own mind, right? And there's this, like, tension that I just couldn't understand. So I, I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, I'm in college and I'm, and I'm studying to be, uh, you know, I was pursuing a career in broadcast journalism. And I've talked about that before a little bit. And I thought, well, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. Like, oh, I need to figure this out. Let me go to the place where I'm sure, like, heaven and earth have collided, and everybody will be living exactly like the New Testament. So let me go to Bible college. And so my best friend, one of my best friends at the time, who I've mentioned, who I just mentioned, the only Christian friend I really had at the time, um, I found out that, like, she was going to this Bible college, and I said, okay, well, like, I mean, where is it? Uh, okay, well, I'll guess I'll go. I'll guess I'll go. Sight unseen. I'm like, I'll go. Do they have a baseball team? They have a football team. Okay, I'll go. So I, I, I literally this, and this, this is a whole other story. I called the coaches. I'm like, hey, you know, this is who I am, and I've been going to this college for these sports, and I want to come down. Can I do that? Like, yeah. And so, okay, I'm going. And so I went to Bible college, and again, this is uh, tribute this again to my own innocence and. Um, being a bit naive and, you know, all this stuff, but uh, it took me mm, two days <laughs> to, to figure out that something was not, not the way that I thought it would be. And uh, it created all kinds of problems for me, honestly, and, and I had some anger, some frustration, some resentment, a lot of disillusionment, and I didn't always handle it well. I mean, I didn't. Um, I had things happen that I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that that went on. Um, and I could give you several examples of that kind of stuff, but it just threw me for a loop. Like, why is this? This is a Christian college, the Bible college, and like, what's going on? I don't get this. And again, I just didn't understand that, like, uh, what had been normal uh, and what I'd read and poured over for a year at that time and just devoured, uh, it was no longer normal. In fact, it was uh, the exception, not the rule. It was sort of an outlier rather than the standard. It was incredibly rare 
rather than being common. And even on a Bible college campus, this is no joke, 2,000 students, even on that campus, the kids that I knew, the students I knew, who would have been considered like radical Jesus followers and they had that title, like they stood out even amongst others, but like they were even made fun of at times. It's a bit strange to think about. Um, and so that's colored my experience, though. That gift and burden God gave me 25 years ago to, to just devour the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament and then to still believe, despite all evidence sometimes to the contrary, and all evidence is even at times in my own life that I've had this tension and this, I think, again, it's a gift, um, but that I still believe that's how we should be doing it. That I still believe 25 years after the fact and all the experiences I've had, all the negative ones, all the positive ones, all the neutral ones, everything where I've been hurt by the church or wounded by the church and had Christians do this and that and I've done this and that and haven't, I still, 25 years later, have this deep, deep conviction, deep conviction and Pastor Jordan shares this with me. That's why the name of the series is what it is, but that there is something more for us. That there is something that what we read about, it's not archaic, it's not an era gone by, it's not something that can never be again, but that it's something that God still calls his people to. You know, Tim spoke uh, just a few minutes ago during Christ Be Magnified about the reality of that song and how it seems to just have lit a fire under us as a church. Like, every time we sing it, it sounds like it's just something's different is going on. I, I sense that in the room. Tim has sensed that. Pastor Jordan has sensed that. It's not just the singing or that we're singing louder. There's, there's a spirit, there's a heart cry that's going forth during that song. And we were talking before the service um, in Pastor Jordan's off, in I's office about what is that saying, okay? So when a song goes out and we, and we sing it, and suddenly we notice a shift in the atmosphere or in the room, or we notice that there's a response that's different and it's tangible, like we should pay attention to that. Like what is that telling us? And usually what's that, what that's telling us is that collectively as a congregation, there's something in that song, of course, that's usually the lyrics, that are speaking to us, that are maybe putting words to things that we don't always have words for. They're doing the speaking for us, which is what great songs and great poetry and great things do, is they give words to that which we can't always articulate, but what we sense. And if you look at what that song is about, Christ be magnified, it is, it is a heart cry. It is a, a deep resonance in me because it talks about, it's not just all about the warm, fuzzy stuff, right? It says, if, you'll be, if you're going to be crucified, I'll be crucified with you. Like, if, if it brings suffering, I'll embrace it. But I want, and this is where I'm coming with this whole thing is, but what I want is the real thing. Like, what I want is the true, real Jesus to be magnified in my life, to be glorified, to, to show through, to shine. I don't want falsehood, or I don't want fake stuff, or I don't want cheap substitutes. I don't want any of that. I don't want a pseudo-Jesus. Like, I want the real thing, and I'm willing to, like, endure pain and suffering and hardship and trouble to get that because it's so valuable to me. It truly is. The kingdom has become the pearl of great price, and that's what this series is about. I think is that it's this heart cry of, of mine that I've carried for 25 years that Pastor Jordan's carried for a long time of like, we, we so badly want this and we don't want to settle anymore. Like settling just gets old, doesn't it? It just gets old. How's that for the intro? <laughs> I don't know if it's going to get any better than that from here on out, so maybe I should just pray now. Um, but we are in this series, The Normal Christian Life, and we're in the final week of it, Palm Sunday, right before Easter, and 
During the preceding six weeks, Pastor Jordan and I have talked about the early church. And we talked about it primarily uh, with a few notable exceptions. We talked about it in pretty broad stroke terms. And that's okay. That's how, I mean, it's good. It's good to paint a picture that way. But today, as we conclude this series, I want to shift away from the general and get very specific. I want to talk here just in a few minutes about one person from the early church. This person figures very prominently in the Gospels and uh, is without a doubt someone that we should revere, look to uh, as a hero of our faith. But with that being said, there's a, a real strange irony, as you'll see here, I think, and that this person uh, receives little to no airtime from the pulpit or really anywhere for that matter, um, meaning that even if you, you think you know who I'm referring to, you probably don't, and that's okay. But before we get to, to that part, I want to set the table a bit by taking a brief step back and, and talking about the history of Christianity in the United States. Now, let me say, I'll do this quickly, okay? Let me say that this is by no means a, a comprehensive or a scholarly history. I'll really only be referencing the past 100 to 120 years, depending on how you look at it. And I won't be giving any sort of like family tree account where I branch off here and branch off here and talk about this and this and this and that. Not going to get hyper-specific with it. What I'll be speaking to instead when I say a history of Christianity in the United States, what I'll be speaking to instead is the overarching views of God that have dominated the landscape of Christian culture for the past century, century plus, okay? The overarching views of God that have dominated the landscape of Christian culture in the United States for the past hundred years. Now, I, I understand that I'm going to these are extremely broad strokes, okay? And I understand there's a lot of nuance here that I'm not going to have a chance to go into today. So just bear with me and, and, just, and just kind of just be okay with what I say. <laughs> so, because I understand I could preach, I could literally, and I, and I have, like teach classes on this kind of stuff that are multiple weeks, okay? This, we're talking about five minutes. So the first view of God that dominated the Christian landscape in the United States for from 100 years ago plus, so the late 18, early 1900s, for quite some time, multiple, multiple decades, five decades at least, probably more like seven, is what I call the vengeful God, okay? This is, this is a God that honestly, some people would say it's like the God of the Old Testament, but even the God of the Old Testament, when you read through it, is kind and gracious and merciful. And if you read the way that he responds to, to the people of Israel, he's slow to anger and quick to compassion and forgive and all these types of things. But somehow, all the, even the Old Testament stuff where, that showed the beauty of God's character was ripped out. The entire New Testament was basically ignored. And we had this view of God where he was just this angry guy. I mean, he was just angry. He was just mad all the time. And he was literally standing up in heaven with a handful of lightning bolts, just waiting to see who messed up and who did something wrong so he could just chuck a lightning bolt down and just destroy him. And that was a popular and, I mean, dominant view of God for a very long time. This is the God of fundamentalism. This is the God of people who had a really odd and historically unique in a bad way view of the Bible. 
they took the Bible and started to interpret it in a way that literally it had never been interpreted before for the whatever, 2,000 years prior, and it honestly never should have been interpreted that way. And it was messed up on a number of levels, but somehow it became a dominant view of God. And some of you maybe grew up in a church, I did, uh, which is part of the reason why I wanted nothing to do with it, but the image of God was the vengeful God. The image of God was this angry guy who if you didn't do X, Y, and Z, you were about to get zapped, right? And I have no memories of growing up of anything talking about the compassion and character and all these beautiful things about God that's always about what you shouldn't do. And what you not only, and if you do it, then you better watch out. And you need to make sure you don't do X and don't do this and don't do this. And it was this vengeful God. So the best way I can sum this up now, I'm going to give a quote in a second and don't put it up quite yet. This quote is actually way before the time period uh, that I'm referring to. It was preached about 150 years before um, what I'm talking about. But this is probably the m- most accurate synopsis and summary of the vengeful God that really, even though it was preached a long time before, it carried over until probably, gosh, I mean, the, the 1950s at least. If longer than that, honestly, but uh, longer than that as the dominant view. So 60s, even 70s. So this is a quote. Uh, some of you have heard of this guy, Jonathan Edwards, preached a famous message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And now Jonathan Edwards was a great theologian on a number of levels, and I'm not trying to bash him. Uh, but this quote, uh, it sums up this idea of the vengeful God. This was the leading preacher, leading theologian in America for a long time. So he said this as part of his message. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Uh, guys, I couldn't make this up. Like, I, I mean, I, I've been a writer my whole life. I can't write that well, like, to fake it. The vengeful God, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and it's only through his mercy, but I mean, he's, he's angry, but he has, like, the tiniest bit of mercy, and it's only that little bit of mercy that keeps him from just absolutely destroying you with this arrow. It's something out of, like, a, you know, horror movie, or I don't even, it's just weird. Okay, so that was the dominant view of God for a long time is this fundamentalist, vengeful God. And that lasted for a long time. And depending on who you talk to, it started to shift. And it needed to shift. Can we agree on that? Like, we needed to get away from that. That's not good. And then it shifted, though, into sort of a weird place. It didn't shift. uh, I guess it was better, but I don't know. How you define better, maybe. So the next kind of God that I would say was a dominant view of God was the helpful God, okay? The helpful God. Now, the helpful God uh, was the God that was really popularized by a minister slash psychologist type dude named Norman Vincent Peale. And this was the God of positive thinking. This was the God of pop psychology. This is the God who you have your whole life and you know the pie chart of your life and you have these different areas and God kind of slides in, you know, to assist you and all the things that you want to do and all your goals and all your desires. He just kind of comes along and he helps you and you sort of cherry pick these promises and you just, you just think positively and you just do all this kind of stuff. And he's just, he's just there to help, you know, he's just there to help, you know, that's what he does. He's, you know, just very helpful. This is like, uh, if you've ever watched, uh, and this is, this is still, I think, really popular 
Um, but if you've ever watched um, Oprah's uh, Super Soul Sunday, okay? So it's like a thing where she has all these different people from all these different types of like religious backgrounds and they kind of have these conversations. It's like pretty much that. It's like just sort of pop psychology, like mixed with weird, like new age stuff, mixed with like Buddhist traditions, mixed with like sort of some kind of a Jesus thing thrown in there, mixed with self-help, mixed, it's just weird, okay? And this is what like, this is what the dominant view of God was. Churches that had this view of God exploded. Exploded, starting in really a couple of them in the late 70s, then through the 80s, 90s. Like these churches exploded. A lot of mega churches in this time were churches that had this sort of helpful God. It was like, how do we attract all these people that don't want the vengeful God? You know, well, here's what we'll do we'll just tell them that God's just helpful. <laughs> We won't ask that much of them. We'll just say, like, here's this Jesus that he just kind of wants to come along, and he just wants to be your buddy, you know? And, uh, I, and I, I want, I'll put a quote up here in a second, and I don't want to, I do not mean it by any stretch to, to bash this person who said this quote or anything. I just think that it perfectly, like, uh, summarizes what I'm talking about, so don't think I'm, that I, I hate this guy or anything like that. Just know that it summarizes it. So go ahead and put that quote up. This quote summarizes the, the you know, helpful God. So don't, guys, you know, it's, so, it, so I don't, I don't want to do that at all. But it does, he did say this, and it does so sum it up. It's, it's really disturbing, honestly. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's disturbing. It, it says God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. So it's this weird sort of like helpful God. Like God's, God's done his part here, but he's going to help you now by like just you just take these words that he said and you just like use them like, you know, like good luck charms or that kind of thing. Like it's superstitious in a lot of ways. Uh, and the, the goals, the orientation of the goals are all wrong and, and, you know, out of whack and that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just, but this is, guys, I mean, we're talking about the largest church in America. So, I mean, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. And I'm not, again, I'm just saying this is a reality. And there, he's not, this, there, there are many other pastors, many other churches that talk about stuff like this. So there's this God, and that God is... You know, it's not, it's, not, it's not God. It's not really great. But then the third one is one that we're definitely in now. And, and this is how, well, these are all my own titles. So if you think that they're incorrect, that's, you can, you know, make up your own and stuff. That's fine. But the next one I would say is the lovesick God. Now, this, is a, this one is a big, of course, you know, swing and pendulum from the vengeful God to the lovesick God. It's a very big pendulum swing. Now, let me say this. There, in my estimation, in my opinion, this, this version of God, and it sounds weird to say that, but this emphasis, we'll say, on the character and nature of God is a positive thing. It is a good thing. Because coming out of this vengeful God, and then the, I've been a pastor for a long time now, and I've noticed that many people, many Christians, uh, in fact, I would say the majority for a long period of time have an incredibly difficult time believing that God actually loves them. 
There's all kinds of shame. There's all kinds of guilt. There's all kinds of I don't measure up. There's all kinds of performance anxiety. There's all kinds of all of this stuff that comes out of the sort of vengeful God or, you know, even the self-help God because you feel like, well, I'm trying to, to do all this stuff, but I'm too weak, and so then God's not giving me what I need, and so it results in this all kinds of shame, and so now we've come up with, like, this lovesick God who there's just been a heavy emphasis, and necessarily so. So I'm not speaking of this in a negative light at all. Necessarily so, there's been an emphasis placed on a lovesick God, a God who loves his children, loves his creation, goes to great lengths, of course, this is, you know, the, the message of the cross that God gave, right, his only son. And then it says, if he did not spare his only son, will he not also, give us free, all, also freely give us all things? He loves us. Every good and perfect gift comes down, you know, all these beautiful things. And so we have a generation of, of Christians who've had a lot of healing. And again, necessarily so, a lot of wounds, a lot of scars that have been taken care of. And I count myself right at the top of that list of people who in the last decade plus have had a radical transformation in terms of how they view themselves in relation to God and no longer have an unhealthy fear of God, but have a, an awe and a reverence to understand him as Abba, right? And that is an, an incredibly beautiful thing. This is probably best summarized by a song that we all know probably by heart that we've sung a million times, it's How He Loves, right? And, and if you look at the, the lyrics, I have a few of them up here, and you can all sing it right now. You know, he is jealous for me. His love's like a hurricane and I'm a tree. It's bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And that is awesome language. We, we absolutely need a realization of how beautiful he is and how great his affections are for us. And oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves me. How he loves you. How he loves us all. We absolutely need that. But the thing is, here's the but. We can't stop there. We can't stop in this place where we understand this lovesick God and we just, it's always about us soaking up the love of God. Because there's another God. And again, I know the language is a bit odd, but there's, there's a full version of God that we haven't discussed yet. And this God I would call the consuming fire God. The consuming fire. Fire, God. There's a, there's a verse in the Old Testament that I, I always have loved. It's from Jeremiah chapter 20, and I think he sums up what I'm talking about really well. He's actually complaining to God in, this, in the verses surrounding this, but the heart of what he's saying is so powerful. He's saying, if I say, because he's talking about preaching, if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire a fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding in, and indeed I cannot. He is so consumed by God that even when he's upset and frustrated and going through hard times and doesn't want to talk about God or speak God's word, he's still, he's so consumed by it, he can't help. We'll talk more about this consuming fire God here as we go on, but if you remember at the beginning of last week's message, I told you that the material we'd cover last week was really just one part of a two-part thought. 
And I said it, there was going to be a logical conclusion to last week, but it wasn't a finished product. I talked about choosing pain and embracing discomfort for the sake of the kingdom and showed uh, what was, I, I think everybody would agree, was an incredibly powerful video. And then we had an amazing time of worship, maybe the best time of worship we've ever had here as a community. It was just, the presence of God was just thick. And, and it was a generally an awesome morning. And I left just incredibly encouraged and excited. And, and all of that is great. And I like all of that. And, you know, I, I love it, in fact. But the truth is that all of that will make zero impact on the world unless we walk out those doors consumed and compelled, consumed with and compelled by love for Jesus. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and we talked about that several weeks ago, and I give my body over to hardship, which was the nature of the message last week, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So here's the question for today. Here's the sort of overarching theme. We talked about these different sorts of gods that have dominated the Christian landscape and how right now there's been this very good one, which is the love set God, and we've understood his love for us, something fundamental that we need to understand. But again, we can't stop there. So here's the challenge for this morning. Here's the question, is how much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? Something to think about. Hard to answer. I don't always... I, it's just, it's, I'm putting it out there so it can frame the rest of this. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. I'll give you a little bit of a contrast here as we kind of transition. In John's gospel, he repeatedly identifies himself as the one that Jesus loved. It's a great thing to have as an identity. There are a lot worse things you could believe about yourself than that you are the one that Jesus loves. But throughout the gospel, there was one who loved Jesus more than almost anybody, probably more than anybody else in my opinion. So while John was the apostle that Jesus loved, the one who loved Jesus more devotedly, more intensely than anybody else was Mary Magdalene. We're going to talk about her just for a few minutes here. In Luke 8, 1 through 3, he writes this early in, early in Jesus' ministry. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Just casually mentions that. Mary, called Magdalene, Another casual mention, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, 
the manager of Herod's household, which don't miss the hilarious irony in that, that Herod was actually paying to finance Jesus' ministry. Susanna and many others, and these women, so we got some girl power today, these women were helping to support them, the apostles and Jesus, out of their own means. So Luke names three women. But Mary Magdalene is the first from whom seven demons had come out, and she was supporting Jesus' ministry with her own money. So here's an interesting fact, something maybe you didn't know that's perfect for a holy week. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mary Magdalene alone is present at both the cross and the tomb. Think about that. Of all the heroes of our faith that we talk about, right? Peter, the founder of the church. John, the one whom Jesus loved. James, the fiery, all these different people. There's only one person who was at the cross and at the tomb, and it was Mary Magdalene. In John 19, 25, he writes, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Apparently Mary was a common name back then. Got three out of the four women the cross that are named Mary. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, a couple other people, and Mary Magdalene. In John 20, verse 1, John records, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, this was Sunday morning, by the way, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She's present at the cross. She's present. She's the first person early on Sunday morning when it was still dark. She's the first person to the tomb, the first person to see that the stone had been removed. So here's the remainder of the account of when Mary Magdalene encountered the empty tomb. And we have it on the screen if you want to read along. It's from John 20, 11 through 16. So then the disciples went back to where they were staying. If you remember, Mary sees the empty tomb. She runs back. She gets the disciples. Hey, the, I mean, I don't know what's going on. you got to come. And, and Peter and John take off running, right? And they get there, and they, they have this sort of encounter and this, then it says, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So they take off, but Mary stays. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She was brokenhearted. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? This response always just amazes me in its simplicity, but they've taken my Lord away. They've taken my Lord away, even though he was crucified, even though he was dead. She still viewed him as her Lord. She didn't know, guys, what was coming. She said, I don't know where they have put him. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. I don't know that I've ever read a verse in all of the scripture that sums up what I talked about at the beginning of this message when it comes to my burden and the burden that I've carried and the passion that I've carried for the gospels and for Acts and for the New Testament and the frustration I felt. I felt at times, you've taken my Lord away. 
and I don't know where you've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, sort of hilarious, I guess. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Calls her by name. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Man. I can't even imagine that moment. Mary's love of Jesus was extraordinary. And Mary's love, Mary was an ordinary woman with extraordinary love. She was still hopelessly devoted to Jesus, even though she thought he was dead. And her devotion to Jesus didn't stop with his death. And don't forget, again, she didn't know the rest of the story at this point. We have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. She had no clue. She thought he was dead. She didn't know this story was going to have a happy ending. She simply thought somebody stole Jesus' body at worst or moved it at best. Either way, she thought Jesus was dead, but she was still devoted to him. Look again at what she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. I will get him. Now that is what I would call furious love. The furious love of Mary Magdalene. They've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. And then she has an encounter with someone, and she says, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is, and I will go get him. I will go after him. I will do whatever it takes. She had no clue where he could have been, didn't know what she was going to have to go through to get him. She just says, wherever he's at, that's where I'm going, and I'm going to go get him. And I wonder, do we have the same attitude when we encounter frustration, when we encounter pseudo-Jesuses or things that we understand are, are not real, not pure, that we have confusion? Do we say to God, like we talked about in this first sermon of this entire series, do we have a divine discontentment where we say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. I will find him. I will do whatever it takes. Here's how this passage, this passage excuse me, challenges me and how I think it should challenge you as well. This is a strong statement, but I think it's, I think it's true at times. Uh, I believe Mary's devotion to a dead Jesus is greater than our devotion to the living Jesus today. Mary's devotion to a dead Jesus is greater than our devotion to the living Jesus today. Think about this. A passage, this passage of scripture we read in John 20 says that Mary knowingly saw two angels, not two men. She recognized them as angels. Mary saw two angels, and she honestly seemed like she didn't care. If any of us saw an angel or two, we'd be telling everybody about it. Well, I guess maybe, I don't know if you didn't want to be looked at as crazy, but a lot of people would be like, I mean, I saw, I mean, you'd just be, and, and probably you'd be, you know, right. It'd be amazing to see angels. But she's just like, uh, okay, all right. Where's Jesus? <laughs> Her focus was solely on Jesus. 
And I, and I hope that our soul focuses on Jesus as well, that we don't just know that he loves us, which is, again, so key, but that we have a furious love for him, that we, like Mary, say, I will go get him. As we approach, as we're now in, I should say, Holy Week, it's, it's vital to begin contemplation of the resurrection. And this is key. It's vital to begin contemplation of the resurrection by realizing that Jesus, hear, hear this, that Jesus appeared only to those who loved him. Jesus didn't appear to Pilate or to Judas. Jesus didn't appear to the high priest, centurions or the Pharisees. In all of the gospel accounts, Jesus only appeared to his disciples and his friends, those who loved him. Jesus appears first to the women. The women did not abandon Jesus at his death. All the apostles, except for John, scattered. But these women, Mary Magdalene among them, did not abandon him at his death. Then the women were the first to appear at the tomb, and hence they were the first to see evidence of his resurrection. It's no wonder Mary Magdalene was the first to see the resurrected Jesus. She didn't abandon him at the cross. She got up early on the first day that they were legally allowed to get up and go and went to the tomb while it was still dark. What does Jesus mean to tell us by revealing himself only to those who loved him? I think it's pretty simple. You cannot taste the kingdom of God if you do not love God. cannot taste the kingdom of God if you do not love God. It's great to know that God loves you. But there has to be a response. There has to be something that goes back that we love because he first loved us, but that's the key. We love. It has to be reciprocated. Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, says, purity of heart is to want one thing. So think about that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity of heart is to want one thing. What is the one thing that he's referring to? The one thing that we should want is the kingdom of God. And if we have a pure heart and we go after the kingdom, if we're single-minded in our focus, if we love God and we passionately pursue him, and that's our purity of heart, we, there's a promise that we will see God. It's love, not intelligence, not good behavior, not even the highest kinds of morality that draws us to God and vice versa. Go ahead and call the worship team up at this time as we get ready to close. So I've talked a lot in, in, I'd say, somewhat abstract terms today. I've asked you, how much do you love Jesus? And I've talked about the necessity of not getting stuck in this idea that God loves you, but that thinking about that you should have a furious love in return. And we've talked about Mary Magdalene as a sort of a model for that. But sometimes we're stuck with this question of, okay, I get it. Well, what does love look like? 
how do I do that? And that's a complicated, complicated answer sometimes. But I want to sort of summarize it using one of my favorite, if not my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and that's from Romans 12. This is what love looks like. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so some translations will say in view of God's love, in view of God's compassion, view of God's love for you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In the Old Testament, they would build altars, and he's using Old Testament language here. In the Old Testament, they would build altars, and they would prepare a sacrifice, and then they would burn it. The fire would come, and it would consume the sacrifice, and the smell would drift up into heaven. It would be pleasing to God. In other times in the Old Testament, they'd prepare a sacrifice and fire would fall down from heaven. Like, like in the contest uh, on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal where fire falls and it consumes the sacrifice. So the idea here that Paul's talking about is because God has loved you so much in view of his mercy, in view of his gift of his son, what I want you to do, so get this imagery. If you leave with anything today, leave with this image. He's saying, what I want you to do is there's an altar, a figurative altar of God. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to climb up on it and lay down. I want you to become the sacrifice. Everything that you are, everything that you will be, everything that you have, everything you receive from him, I want you to take all of it and I want you to literally in your mind, crawl up on that altar, and I want you to lay down and say, God, here I am. I offer you, I offer my body, I offer my life as a living sacrifice. Come, let your fire fall on me. Let your fire fall on my life. Empower me to love you and to love your people. Empower me to embody Jesus. Empower me to live the normal Christian life, not some cheap substitute. Empower me to not settle. Let me come after you. Let me find where they put you and, and go and get you. Whatever it takes, God, I'm after your heart. So what does love look like? It looks like this. It looks like offering everything you have and everything you are to him and let nothing stand in the way. There's an old, an old song by a guy named Steve Green. Anybody ever heard of him? The Bill Gaither guy in the 80s. But I remember singing this and just loving it. And this chorus sums up what I'm talking about here. The song, I think, is titled Broken and Spilled Out. But the chorus says this, Broken and spilled out just for love of you, Jesus. Of course, he's referencing here the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. Broken and spilled out just for love of you, Jesus. My most precious treasure, everything I have, lavished on thee, broken and spilled out and poured at your feet in sweet abandon. I love this. Let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Broken and spilled 
out. Let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Of course, this is simply a model of what Jesus did for us. He came and he said, here I am to do your will. Let me be broken and spilled out, poured out for you, Father. And that's what we celebrate each week as we take communion, which we're gonna do at this time. So there are communion cups located directly on the seat backs in front of you. And in those, you'll find a little wafer on top and juice inside. There are two layers to peel back, a thin plastic one that will reveal the wafer and a thicker foil one that reveals the juice. Now that we're kind of back to more normal, we do also have a gluten-free option today available over, if if over there, there's a plate. You can get it here in a second when I pray. But we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice as Jesus did, broken and spilled out. We want the real thing. Jesus, thank you that you were broken and spilled out, that you not cling to your rights as God, but that you humbled yourself and took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We celebrate your sacrifice this week. Today and on Good Friday coming up here in a few days, and we also look forward to next Sunday where we celebrate your resurrection, your triumph over death, that you purchased life for us. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus gave, took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body given for you as often as you take it. Do so in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take now the body of our Lord. And likewise, after the meal, he took the cup And he gave thanks and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant given for you. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take now the blood of our Lord. Would you stand with me now as we sing one more time? Let us be living sacrifices. Let us be broken and spilled out and used up for him. Jesus, we offer this worship now to you in these final few minutes. Let it be pleasing. Let it be a a pleasing aroma in your nostrils. Let it be a worthy sacrifice to you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.